Welcome to episode 339 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, or our pets, and frankly, might not even reflect our views three weeks from today. But joining me for the news roundup are uh, three um, stalwarts for uh, uh, the Cyberlaw Podcast, Megan Stiffel from the uh, uh, Global Cyber Alliance and the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative, um, David Chris from Culper Partners, Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley Computer Science School, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur of today's program. We're going to jump right in. Uh, I think it's... Uh, fair to say that one of the most interesting aspects of this transition uh, uh, is going to be how much of the Trump administration's policy on China survives the transition. And uh, everybody in the Trump administration is working overtime to try to make sure as much as possible uh, survives. We talked a little bit about the idea that they're doing uh, multiple uh, uh, independently targeted reentry vehicles uh, uh, with um, uh, program after program designed to decouple from China. And uh, last week, uh, uh, Attorney General Barr got into the act by producing what was called a report card or maybe a legacy burnisher about uh, the Justice Department's China initiative. Uh, uh, David, how did they do in terms of their report card? Well, they give themselves uh, a very strong grade. Um, I mean, I think uh, this story and this issue sort of raises both a strategic and a tactical question, you know, strategically, the conventional wisdom of the foreign policy blob uh, that I know, Stuart, you hold dear, <laughs> is that Trump rightly recognized the threat and competition from China, for which he deserves credit, but then was terribly chaotic and disorganized and undisciplined in addressing it, for which he deserved blame. And the same kind of conventional wisdom is that Biden will also recognize the threat, but perhaps address it with greater coherence or strategery. The principal probably perceived risk for Biden will being that he might be more hemmed in by traditional thinking to include possibly diplomatic hand wringing and also perhaps by a desire to achieve a new stability very quickly because he conventional wisdom is he's going to serve one term, which if it were indulged would come across as weakness uh, and then backfire. So there's that strategic overlay here for the more tactical assessment of DOJ's uh, uh, activities here, which, you know, are basically limited to investigating and in some cases prosecuting espionage and economic espionage and various cyber predations and possibly propaganda activities, as well as addressing foreign investment and supply chain risks. Um, and there are various views, you know, in the establishment uh, and among smart people about the pros and cons of addressing the kind of geopolitical competition we're seeing out of China with, you know, indictments and the like. People like Jack Goldsmith, uh, very smart people, think it's basically useless and maybe even 
shows weakness. Uh, my own view is, you know, we don't really have a silver bullet for dealing with China or other cyber predations. And so I'd take it as one tool among many, if certainly not the only tool, not the best tool, but I wouldn't turn my nose up unless until we have something better. And that seems to be the the kind of animating energy behind this year in review China initiative, uh, that they've done some prosecutions, those prosecutions or, or indictments at least allow for credible attribution because it's the US government saying we could prove this in court beyond a reasonable doubt if we needed to. Uh, and that can be helpful in calling out misconduct um, and I think they also do deserve real credit for sort of toughening up a little bit on Team Telecom and CFIUS, partly in response to legislation. So fine. But on the Team Telecom side, the president issued an executive order and they did uh, apparently cause the FCC to deny some licenses to Chinese telecommunications providers who were seeking to hook up cables or provide long distance telephone service in the US. Yeah, some, some, some of those licenses were pending for 10 years and nobody had, yeah. the, had the nerve to pull the trigger. Right. And so those are real, I think that's a, a, a real measurable kind of visible change. Uh, and I think probably most people would say it's a good idea that we not rely on you know, Chinese long distance, Chinese long distance providers uh, for our telephone service in the U.S. At least a lot of people would say that. So, uh, you know, to be fair to DOJ, they, they've done some real things here, I think. Uh, the, the administration has done some things. And I think probably in many respects, the Biden administration will be happy to carry on with a good deal of them. So what do you think about the prospect that's been mooted? I think I saw an article in Lawfare and uh, it was persuasive, which is uh, uh, the suggestion that China is so sick of these criminal uh, cases, many of them IP related, uh, uh, but not all of them, uh, that they are dying to arrest a few American businessmen and put them through Chinese justice systems. Uh, um, a, I, I frankly think that's a disaster from the Chinese point of view because it will solidify uh, the uh, the hostility and maybe may make sure that everything Trump has done continues. Uh, uh, do you think that's realistic? <laughs> and should the Justice Department be considering it when it's deciding whether to indict people? Well, I do think it's possible uh, and plausible. I mean, the arrest of the, the Huawei CFO in Canada, um, uh, you know, these kinds of tit for tat activities are, I think, within reason. And I have to confess, if I were, you know, the CF, uh, the, the general counsel of a company talking to my CFO about travel to Beijing, I would certainly think twice uh, about this possibility, even if, you know, the odds of any one person are, are low. Um, whether they will really do it right at the beginning of the Biden administration, they may be waiting to see and it might be wise for them to wait and see how things play out. Uh, maybe they want to try to hit a reset. You know, there have been benefits for China in Trump's chaos. I think there have been some stresses as well, and they are, you know, sophisticated and may want to sort of see how things go before taking that kind of escalatory a step that could, you know, uh, make things worse. But I wouldn't rule it out as a tactic over time if the Biden administration continues to use the criminal justice system as the Trump administration has been doing. And frankly, you know, as uh, the Obama administration did, uh, because the first of these kinds of indictments was brought uh, at the end of the Obama administration. 
So um, meanwhile, Congress continues to roll out sanctions programs of its own, especially focusing on uh, forced labor in China and the Uyghur situation. Uh, um, there's a bill pending in uh, both houses that is very close to passage. Um, and uh, it's only made headlines because Apple got caught lobbying against it. Um, Megan, do we know why Apple is afraid of a bill that would uh, uh, try to stop the use of forced labor in China? I don't know that we know directly why, but we certainly know that there's a portion of the bill that involves um, borrows from the Dodd-Frank Act and, and essentially it tackles the or attacks on the possibility of enforcement from the Securities and Exchange Commission. So this, um, as you mentioned, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act did actually already pass the House, and it's now before the Senate uh, with sponsors, um, with Senator Marchio, I believe it's Marchio, Senator Rubio, Marco Rubio, as its uh, primary proponent there. Um, and the, the SEC portion of this requires that uh, public companies certify that their products are not made using forced labor from Xinjiang. And Xinjiang is maybe or all everybody knows that that's a predominantly Muslim uh, area of China where there have been in the past significant reports of, of forced labor. Um, there's the assertion that there are labor camps there with, with hundreds of thousands of, of um residents in them uh, and the ability, of course, to, to actually verify through the supply chain process that, that some component of, of an Apple product, for example, has not been manufactured there is becoming increasingly challenging due to the measures that the Chinese government has taken to block, uh, block researchers and others who are human rights advocates from, from getting to the, the area. Um, so that's something the, around the problem. Yeah. The problem is, as, as, as from Apple's point of view is they do have systems that are designed to uh, make sure that their components aren't made with forced labor, but they involve third-party validators, auditors going to these places. And it's increasingly difficult to do that without running foul of Chinese national security uh, uh, concerns. Uh, And if you run afoul of Chinese national security concerns and you're a Chinese national, it's not going to end well. So, uh, the presumably Apple is worried about the accuracy of any representations it would have to make about not using um, forced labor components. Yes, and of course you have Tim Cook, who's been public in, in saying that they um, does not tolerate Apple doesn't tolerate forced labor in its supply chain, and forced labor is abhorrent. So uh, the the real prospect of of a uh, public display of Ignorance is is quite daunting, I think, if you're Apple, and I forget what the large figure is that they're and, sitting and on frankly, these days. They're candid about what they try to do and how it is defeated by the Chinese government. It's going to make the Chinese government unhappy, and you know, so they can they can see that this is going to result in them being forced to say things that, in the end, are going to either. Uh, create liability under U.S. law or create serious problems in China. So I can understand why they, uh, and particularly Apple, would be worried about this. Uh, doesn't mean it's a bad idea, but it's it's going to have a, an impact on China, on Apple. And you can see why they would be lobbying gingerly against it. Okay, let's... Uh, let's Stork, let's, was yeah. that sympathy for Apple? That's what? Was that sympathy for Apple? 
I, I from you I won't go so far as to say it's sympathy, but I uh, I can see if I were the general counsel of a company in Apple's position, I'd be worried that I'm I'm gonna it's gonna be no win for me. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I look I, I, a company that is as utterly hypocritical about its uh, so-called values as Apple is, which is uh, uh, they're against law enforcement in the United States, and they uh, are selectively silent about uh, everything that's happening in China. Uh, you know, maybe they do deserve to be forced to confront the, the uh, uh, conflict between their uh, representations. Uh, uh, so I'm not going to offer too much sympathy, but I do think uh, uh, in general, this creates a little more risk than maybe uh, uh, the folks who are pushing it uh, uh, realize, or maybe they they feel the way I do that uh, it's time for Apple to uh, confront uh, uh, the question: uh, you know, which side are you on? All right, uh, and you having raised your head, uh, uh, Nick. Uh, let me ask you about the White House's. You know, we're still in uh, um, uh, the process of burnishing everybody's uh, credentials for what they've been doing. And so the White House has issued guidance saying, we've been really on this AI thing, uh, artificial intelligence, and we've got a whole bunch of guidance for federal, federal agencies. So we're, we're going to shape the future on artificial intelligence, at least for the next eight weeks. Uh, you read it. I, I, I did my usual search, control F bias. And there was a lot of talk. Well, there was some talk about bias, which usually uh, presses my BS meter. What did you think more generally of it? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, it's a nice break from shredding the constitutional order to protect the president's feelings. <laughs> um, and it's basically a light touch. So they say you should consider bias, which is a real issue, but they don't really harp on it. They basically it is a arguing for light touch status quo, um, which is reasonable. And I think this guidance will actually survive the new administration because it's basically motherhood and apple pie towards regulatory guidance. Well, they, they managed to, to live four years under Obama administration AI guidance. Uh, that, that Then the Obama administration put out its paper maybe four months from the end of the Obama uh, administration, but uh, not much uh, closer, not, not much later than that or earlier than that. So uh, it is um, – uh, it, it seems to be now a tradition. We can get the Biden AI view uh, uh, in uh, uh, four years from today. <laughs> All right. Uh, one other AI question. There was a uh, discussion about uh, um, human in the loop uh, in the context of uh, uh, allowing robots to carry out actions uh, um, and the inclination of uh, uh, humans to get in and say, oh, you idiot. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Um, and the suggestion from the experts was that the people who try to do this are going to create bad robots uh, or at least ineffective robots. Uh, can you unpack why um, what some people have been calling human in the loop turns out to be a recipe for uh, poor uh, artificial intelligence swarm design? 
It basically comes down to decision cycles. I've been thinking about this personally for a long time. And if any of the listeners here are Pentagon planners or the like, uh, hit me up. I have a slide deck that will scare the pants off you on this subject. The thing is, is it comes down to decision cycles, that a computer's decision cycle isn't necessarily very good but is very, very fast. Human decision cycles are very slow in comparison. And so when you're designing a human-computer hybrid, basically a, a cyborg design philosophy for a military application, what you need to do is shape it so that the human decision cycle only affects things at human levels, at human time scales. So what you have to do is you have to go with systems instead, which are not human in the loop, but human on the loop. So the person just provides general guidance and in like go here, go there at a very high level and then let the uh, computers handle the details. It's like being and a parent, so, parent of, a, of a teenager. You've got to let them fail. Is that the idea? And fail fast, faster than, than you can. They, they will fail and correct and fail and correct faster than you can say, oh, I wouldn't do that. Yes. And it's, uh, in general, um, a good way of thinking about it is the OODA loop properties uh, are such that your decision cycle for a computer system is only fast path. And so it shortcuts the uh, high latency decisions. So and doesn't so this, doesn't this raise questions about the very aggressive uh, uh, regulatory um, uh, uh, sort of military law of armed conflict effort to say you can never let uh, AI make uh, lethal decisions? That is not sustainable. But at the same time, we've already been very comfortable with autonomous systems making lethal decisions. We just don't call it AI. So we have sensor-fused munitions. We have automatic missile defense systems. We have already built systems where the computer does the actual low-level lethality decision. Yeah, but not, not to mention all the Teslas that occasionally make lethal decisions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I, I, here's a good news story. Uh, Congress, in a, with bipartisan majorities, has passed a cybersecurity bill for the Internet of Things. It in much, but it is something, and it's by and large kind of good, right, Megan? I think so, but I, Stuart, I'm, I'm sure you're going to disagree with me at some point here. So yes, the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act passed the Senate. Um, there we had largely Senator Warner as the proponent, and it passed the, the House a couple of months ago with with uh, Will Hurd and um, Representative Kelly as, as the supporters there. Um, essentially, there are kind of three or four components, depending on the way you count these things. The first is that... Um, Obviously, it, it's the, the goal here is to use the procurement power of the government to, to lift the rising tide of crappy internet devices um, by setting minimum security requirements for products procured by the government. So NIST is, is here required to set some requirements and double required. 
must move quickly. Um, we we think very well that that NIST is already in the process of doing this, so it's not it's not a huge sprint, but it certainly is putting pressure on the agency. Next, there's a notice requirement, so uh, entities providing certain uh, goods to the government need to be able to to notify them that if there's a vulnerability that's been discovered. Um, then there's a requirement that that agencies develop a vulnerability disclosure policy around um, around the product, so that even industry here is, is satisfied that this is not um, the worst thing to come. And uh, I, I, again, think that, you know, we've talked about this, I think, on a prior conversation that this is a little bit, not, a, not an exact parallel here um, to what happened around getting to uh, computers and light bulbs that were less energy sucking. So we use the procurement power of the government there. And now we have something called Energy Star and we have all these wonderful things that, that, don't drain down as much power. The goal here being a similar, let's let's use the, the the power of the purse of the government to hopefully have, again, not expensive consumer products in the case of light bulbs and IoT devices, um, but uh, ultimately lead to a more secure internet. Yeah, and I, this will clearly raise the cost of, you know, putting security in is more expensive than having no security. Uh, uh, but having no security is really expensive for a whole bunch of people who are not actually buying the uh, uh, the products. Uh, so it makes sense to do something. This is something uh, in the old uh, uh, yes minister uh, sense, uh, um, but uh, maybe not the end state we want to be in, but a step toward the end state we want to be in and one that will allow us to decide to, uh, how hard was that? If that wasn't too hard, maybe we should go forward to uh, uh, to say that if you're going to sell the product, it meet, needs to meet these standards or it needs to uh, have a label saying it doesn't if it doesn't. Uh, so that, that'll be the next step. This is a perfectly good first step to my mind. Okay, David, I, I will confess as a former national security agency um, general counsel to having a serious case of GCHQ envy. Uh, GCHQ is the NSA for the UK, but unlike NSA, they seem to have enormous prestige, power, and uh, respect inside the UK. And whenever anything computer security or uh, cyber-related comes up, everybody seems to be saying, oh, well, we'll just give that to GCHQ too. Uh, and that seems to be the latest announcement uh, out of the UK about organized crime. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I do think uh, NSAers and formers could be forgiven for a little GCHQ envy. They do enjoy popular support within the UK. Um, there's obviously less kind of skepticism about government in the UK generally, but also GCHQ, to its credit, has really been fairly forward leaning in publicizing its good works. Uh, they've They've done stuff like explain on their website how GCHQ analysts help catch terrorists, uh, whereas NSA, I think, remains pretty stuck in a no such agency mindset. Um, what's going on here, I think, reflects something really interesting about the convergence of intelligence disciplines in the current environment. Um, you know, GCHQ was founded after the First World War as more or less a pure cryptanalytic outfit working on keys, codes, and ciphers. But... In World War II, uh, in, in pursuit of Enigma cracking, they grabbed a lot of German signal 
uh, in order to increase their sample size and other things. And they found that they could really provide some good insight on German order of battle uh, using that. And that was really how we got into a transition from pure crypto to SIGINT uh, today. And this new offensive cyber effort, I think, is probably best understood as the next evolutionary step in which they're combining SIGINT with cyber operations and trying to move outside the perimeter of friendly networks um, and looking as well maybe with a little more uh, aggressiveness at organized crime. So it's kind of similar to U.S. moves involving defend forward and persistent engagement, which has NSA and Cyber Command more forward deployed and touching adversaries uh, on a more regular basis, bumping into their malware and other TTPs and pushing outward and blurring lines between offense and defense and maybe widening the aperture of the kinds of threats that they are going to address. So I think that's the direction GCHQ is going with this announcement. Um, I have every intention of exploring it further with some uh, august GCHQ alum uh, in the next uh, few weeks and months. Yeah, let us know what you hear about what they're actually doing, uh, uh, because uh, uh, there's a little bit of ambiguity, as you might expect uh, at uh, GCHQ, but it clearly reflects an enormous confidence. There is no DHS uh, equivalent uh, doing any of this uh, and much less of an FBI equivalent doing this. So uh, uh, GCHQ is basically saying, yeah, leave it to us. Uh, and uh, if they pull it off, uh, they will become a model that is uh, um, re-imported into the United States is my prediction. All right. So yep. here's 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 something that I, I there's a big story. I think it was Motherboard uh, um, uh, wanted to tell us that the U.S. military is buying location ad data from ordinary apps, including a Muslim prayer app. Uh, um, and uh, clearly, the intent of the, the story was to say, "Oh, that can't be right." Um, is, is there a legal problem with the, the, the military, or frankly, the FBI buying location data uh, from ordinary apps? You know, it's. I think it's quite interesting for a certain nerdy set like myself and yourself um, from a legal perspective, because, uh, you know, in a way, the question is, should they be able to buy digital data on the open market like everybody else? Um, in general, the U.S. statutes don't heavily regulate or restrict that kind of acquisition. I mean, if you think about FISA and the Wiretap Act, they focus on the use of surveillance devices for acquisition. And the Stored Communications Act really limits only what certain kinds of communications can be produced by certain kinds of providers uh, to the government with a warrant or the or a court order. But the fact, statutes you, you, looking at the Stored Communications Act, which says, you know, that uh, electronic uh, communications providers can't provide that information. Uh, the, the sort of um, uh, implication is. Those are the only companies that are limited in providing it, and those are the only companies to which the government can't go without a uh, court order. So it, it, it right. current law sort of leans toward, yeah, sure, go ahead and get it. I mean, I think doubly so. First of all, the statutes generally don't cover market purchases of data that don't involve a surveillance device where you're not wiretapping the data, but just buying it. And they generally don't restrict all of the entities 
that might have such data to sell, whether directly or, you know, indirectly where it isn't a straw, you know, an, a, an effort to circumvent the statute. I mean, if an RCS or ECS sold through a third party in order to sell it to the government and that was an effort to circumvent, they'd get in trouble. But if the data just ends up for sale or if it's coming from a different source that isn't regulated, um, you know, then I think there's a lot more statutory space. And, and also the statutes, I should say, as you know, Stuart, expressly disclaim regulation of collection on foreign communications systems and have for quite a while because Congress, when it enacted FISA, wanted to leave room for NSAs and other agencies overseas collection. So there are some protections in regulations here, the ones issued under Executive Order 12333, uh, Sections 2.3 and 4. Um, but those are obviously lighter uh, than the statutory restrictions. And what JSOC is doing here looks like it's directed mostly at non-US persons abroad, uh, where the restrictions are even lighter. Um, and again, that's by design. So I'm not at all sure that the story is right if it's uh, suggesting there's a legal problem here. There's always a policy question, uh, but, but from my quick look at this, I don't see an immediate uh, legal violation, I would say, given the way the laws and rules have been set up. And if you tried to write a, a, a law that, that reached this, it would be really tricky to do, I think. Uh, well, there are some efforts underway, I believe, uh, you know, to restrict market purchases uh, by government agencies, um, but it will be hard to get them enacted. Uh, well, I, wa I want to ask you, I want to get to what I think was the best story of the week, maybe the best story <laughs> of the, the month, because uh, it, it was a... Uh, uh, a, a memo and a story released by what I really now think we should call the Privacy and Europocracy Oversight Board <laughs> of the United States, uh, <laughs> uh, explaining just how much European counterterrorist uh, uh, police rely on programs, in this case, terrorist finance programs, uh, where the U.S. gathers intelligence and then shares it back to uh, European authorities that have been heavily criticized by well, European authorities, just different ones. Yeah. So this I, I'm. Uh, inclined to agree with you. This story is a bit of a delight. So Adam Klein, the very fine chairman of the P Club, has issued a statement about the terrorist finance tracking program or TFTP because everything has to have an acronym. Uh, and he took the opportunity in connection with the P Club's review of the TFTP to remind Europe that the U.S. spends, you know, something on the order of sixty billion dollars a year on non-military intelligence collection, including under this. Uh, finance tracking program and oh by the way FAA 702 and shares the results freely with Europe uh, the, the way it works is the the financial data that are collected uh, are stored initially in Europe then transferred to the US Treasury and then queried by Treasury at the request of European law enforcement with query results then being transmitted back across the pond uh, to those European authorities. And it turns out around 40% of the queries of the database come from Europe. Around 75% of all of the foreign disseminations go into the EU. And that amounts to something on the order of 80,000 individual leads going over to EU governments over a three-year period. 
So this is sort of doubly relevant to the ongoing Schrems 2 and GDPR debate in which we're currently embroiled. First, it may be grist for the mill of European privacy lawyers arguing under the so-called public interest exception to the general GDPR rules against transfers. Transfers are permitted in the public interest in certain circumstances. And then, as you say, it's just super fun from a political, hypocritical view that um, European privacy regulators who aren't really responsible either for economic or for, you know, national security are banging away at this while their own security folks are moving data across the Atlantic in both directions in order to get the benefit of uh, the security that they can get from having this kind of big data collected. So fun yeah, all around. I, 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 I agree. I think um, General Nakasone should uh, should borrow the, that Trump ad uh, um, and run it in Europe. Uh, that's the one that said. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a good idea, Stuart. No. What Trump said, they're shooting at me, but they're aiming at you. I, <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, if he does that without attribution, maybe it'll sell. But I, w- exactly. I would not be running Trump ads in Europe right now if I were General Nakasone. <laughs> I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is why I'm no longer uh, uh, in management <laughs> and government. Uh, all right, uh, that was that was worth dwelling on, but we've got to move on. Uh, um, there was a Facebook Messenger bug that actually allowed uh, uh, everybody to do what NSA is famous for doing, which is listening to people uh, uh, as they talk to their friends. Uh, Megan, uh, um, what was the bug? Should we um, be more worried than, than the coverage suggests? I guess it also the bug in this case I think was was narrow in the sense of narrow actually it was quite broad. Uh, it affected Android users, so not Apple uh, iOS users, and it was discovered by um, a researcher who's who's done a number of of O day or zero day discoveries. Natalie Silvanovich, who's an employee over working on uh, Project Zero at Google, and I think folks know that Project Zero has been around since at least 2014, looking to identify zero day vulnerabilities in more than just Google products. So in that space of it, and I think in all spaces of it, I th- it this is probably a good thing that, that at least some of the members of the ecosystem are working on this. So that the issue here is that um, the bug would allow uh, callers to initiate microphones in, in Messenger without the callee's knowledge or interaction. And we can maybe... So your phone is sitting on to- your desk and they just turn it on and listen to whoever you're talking to. If you're running an Android and you obviously then have the messenger app on your phone and all these other ifs, 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 ifs. ifs. So how significant of a vulnerability is it in terms of population impact? Eh, I don't know. But at least now we know that uh, Facebook has has taken the taken the action to fix it and pushed a patch. And so everyone who does run an Android ought to update their messenger app to take advantage of this. Healthy cyber hygiene practice. <laughs> yep, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, continue to, to, to make sure you're running the latest uh, uh, version uh, with Android. That's not so easy, actually, uh, uh, but uh, you need to kind of insist and push your phone and push your uh, uh, carrier to, to keep you updated. Uh, all right, I'm going to uh, uh, start moving faster. Uh, um, Nick, the FBI hires 140 robots uh, to, to retrieve information. Um, uh I thought, you know, there was a there was a joke there about uh, only 140 more, uh, but uh, you thought there actually is something serious about using robots to retrieve information. Uh, uh, why is that a, a, a significant step forward in technology? 
Well, we've all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and the scene at the end where they put the Ark in the government warehouse full of a gazillion identical boxes. That's the FBI file system. By robot, by automating it and the like, they're able to make it so that they'll be able to find the Ark of the Covenant in five seconds and have a robot deliver it to headquarters. Hmm, okay. Well, that, that would be that would be impressive if they could do it. Uh, I think that might also turn to be turn out to be one more place you could lose the file. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, all right, uh, let's uh, let's let's burn through these last four uh, um, uh, stories. Megan, I, CrowdStrike did a study that said uh, uh, it had um, queried people to find out companies to find out who had been subject to ransomware. And it was, I mean, it, it's an epidemic far worse than uh, COVID-19. Yes. So something on the order of 56% of entities surveyed um, acknowledged that they had been hit by by ransomware last year. And, and I guess 27% of those uh, who were hit by it ended up paying. So the average cost according to uh, CrowdStrike, is $1.1 million. It's a little bit less if you're in the United States, apparently, just under a million dollars in terms of costs to the the victims. Um, Certainly troubling... troubling outcome of this survey. And one of the things that the survey points to is, is the impact that that the move to the shift to home uh, as a result of the pandemic has had on organizations' ability to keep keep their employees and then their, therefore their assets uh, beyond the employees, the human assets, uh, secure. So um, wouldn't want to be, uh, of course, it looks like in the APAC region, the, the losses were slightly above. Um, what What's troubling to me about this report is the, the or at least the, the results of the report suggest that folks are really worried about nation state actors and, and maybe some future conversation we can have a concern, a conversation about whether that concern is misplaced. Um, because if you think that you're think worried it's, about it's, nations, it's one, one nation state, uh, North Korea, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, right now I don't, well, who knows, you know, at some point the, uh, uh, there may be value to other, uh, nation states in looking as though they were a ransomware intrusion when in fact they were stealing, uh, more, targeted Russia did right and then they dropped the smoke bomb behind them as they left mm-hmm. Russia did already and I would wonder if there's basically a public private cybercrime partnership going on with the Russian ransomware gangs who first steal all the information before encrypting it yeah okay yeah. Um, the, uh, the WeChat TikTok litigation story is pretty simple. Uh, uh, there haven't been any uh, legal developments except that the Trump administration has filed a new uh, a brief in the WeChat case that I will say is um, much less focused on trying to kill the case with one big uh, blow and instead is dragging those uh, WeChat plaintiffs into long discussions about whether they have standing, whether they are appropriate litigants for the claims they're making, whether they pled their case right. Uh, I think that the, there's a change in tactics. The, gov- the government now sees it's going to have trouble winning this case big, and now they're going to try to win it small. Meanwhile, uh, over in TikTok, we are waiting this week the new deadline uh, for compliance with the CFIUS order or negotiation of a uh, uh, a deal uh, will arise. I think it's uh, Thursday of this week. Uh, and um, 
my this this is uh, uh, where my fifty dollar bet with Nick Weaver uh, still stands. Uh, if litigation prevents that deadline from taking hold, then uh, I think Nick is going to win his fifty bucks, and we'll give it to Lawfare. Uh, and um, if the deadline is missed, which I think it almost certainly will be, uh, um, I think the government's hand is stronger in forcing a tic-tac TikTok uh, uh, divestment. Uh, uh, that's that's where we are, Nick. Right? <laughs> yep. Yep. You 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 you've hung in here longer than I ever expected you to, but I still have another two months to uh, to see if the government can win one of these cases. Uh, all right. Uh, this is. You know, I want to say this is a very sad story, uh, but uh, it's not entirely. Um, in some respects, it's it's quite inspiring. Um, Sean Joyce is a former high-ranking FBI agent who, like so many former uh, government officials, went out to take a significant role in a Silicon Valley company, in this case, Airbnb, which is going public, as we all know. Uh, I, and... Uh, started raising questions last year about how Airbnb was responding to Chinese government demands for information uh, about people, maybe even before they had checked into their uh, uh, dwellings. Uh, and he raised real doubts about whether it was a good idea to share that kind of data with the Chinese government. Uh, uh, According to the story, which is all about from leaked story sources and probably not uh, Sean Joyce, uh, uh, the CEO and founder said, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I sympathize with your view, but we're not here to promote American values, a, uh, a quote that will haunt him for a long time. Um, the, the nice part of this story, because so far it's pretty discouraging, is that Sean Joyce quit. He just said, you know, I, I have a difference of values between the management and myself. And you can be reasonably sure he walked away from uh, real riches uh, with the IPO uh, pending uh, and said, I'd just rather not be part of this. Uh, so kudos to Sean Joyce for standing up for what he believed in. Uh, I'm not sure Airbnb comes out looking so good, although I understand the the pressure they're under. Um, and uh, that, uh, as I say, we're not here to promote American values is likely to be a quote that uh, uh, sticks with them like, uh, uh, let's not be evil. Um, finally, uh, Nick, um, the FCC has done you a, a big favor. Uh, they've more or less, it appears, faced with a deadline of January 20, have given up on the referral of uh, litigate of uh, regulating Section 230, and instead have devoted their last-minute policy uh, uh, cementing process to 5G equipment, uh, which is mainly aimed at uh, Chinese uh, uh, infrastructure equipment. Uh, so it looks as though we can stop talking about whether the FCC has authority to regulate under Section 230 because it's a almost cert dead certainty that uh, the Biden administration isn't likely to prioritize that. Yep. But then again, it's a reasonable approach because without 230, we have the prodigy decision. And with the prodigy decision, the whole Internet becomes 8chan. 
So I, I, I'm not arguing with you. I think that the, the, it, what we probably need here is something that is a little less ham-handed uh, than, litig- than legislation written in 1996 uh, and interpreted by judges who don't know anything about the internet, uh, which is what we've got now. Uh, and uh, handing this to a regulator that... Uh, um, has never put anybody out of business, as far as I can tell, and never will. Uh, um, sort of a soft-handed uh, uh, regulator might be a recipe for getting a Section 230 that fits the 2020s instead of the 1990s. But we we we'll, we probably will never find out. Uh, I'm going to stop there. This is uh, um, uh, episode 339 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks to Megan Stiffel, David Chris, and Nick Weaver for joining me. Uh, thanks to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for our music. Uh, thanks to our audience. Keep sending us comments uh, on cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Suggest guests, and if they come on, we'll send you one of our mugs. Uh, Follow me on Twitter. I've been pretty good up to now uh, asking people what stories they want us to cover on Monday. I usually do that Friday or Saturday. uh, So watch for that and uh, uh, give us a like or a a retweet uh, for the stories you want us to cover. Uh, We've got a pretty good track record of doing that. Uh, And um, rate the show, leave us reviews. We love getting those. And then join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and and government.